Would you pray with me? O God, allow our hearts and our minds to be opened on this day for the word that speaks to us and brings light and hope and renewal in each of our lives. Amen. The writer of the book of Acts is actually the same person who is the gospel writer of Luke. And he's an historian who wrote the two-volume two history of the early Christian church, Luke and Acts, together. And in this narrative in Acts, he crafts a, an historical presentation of the spread of Christianity. And so chapter by chapter, Luke is revealing how the church grew and grew from being centered in Jerusalem to ultimately going to the ends of the earth. He begins with talking about Peter on the day of Pentecost when Peter proclaims the gospel and so many were converted. Peter was one of the twelve. He was an original apostle. And he was when all of the people were gathered there in Jerusalem. But then in a little chapter after that, we come to Stephen. Now, now Stephen was a great preacher. And he was one of the seven that were set aside. You may remember the story that the twelve apostles, or the eleven remaining, they selected a twelfth. But they discovered that there was a lot of serving to do, and so they selected seven to help serve table. And we often have thought, well, these are what you used to call deacons. Only the office of deacon also were people who preached. Because Stephen, one of those seven deacons, also went out and preached mightily. But he was preaching to the proselytes, those who were Gentiles and then became Jews. And then, as Jews, they also accepted Jesus Christ and became followers of the way. And so you have Peter, and then Stephen, and then you have Philip. Philip also is one of the seven that were selected for this special duty. And it goes from Stephen, who then, this like concentric circles, Paul and then Stephen takes in the proselytes. Philip is the first one who goes out of Jerusalem. He first goes to Samaria, which is to the north, to the kinfolk who had been separated for centuries and yet who took their roots back to the earliest Hebrew traditions of Abraham and Sarah and the wandering in the wilderness of Moses. And then, as you move out of chapter 8, you begin to hear about a man named Saul, who becomes the preacher Paul, who takes the word of God not only up north to Samaria and down south to Gaza, but also then to the ends of the world, to Rome, to Galatia, to Philippi, and so on. And we know him best because he wrote a lot of letters to those churches that were scattered everywhere. So they each preached and they each taught this long history of the Hebrews with Moses, Abraham, and so on, and preached Jesus as the risen Lord 
the Son of God. Philip is first gone to the Samaritans to the north, and then an interesting thing. He goes to Gaza from Jerusalem down to Gaza on the desert way. And the idea of desert is that it's an arid place. But I think it's metaphorical as well because it is to the place where this fresh and new word has not been taken. A desert way. And the man that Philip teaches, who's riding along reading Isaiah out loud, which was a custom, in his chariot as he was leaving Jerusalem, that man was Ethiopian and he was a eunuch. He was a one of the diaspora of the Jews who in the 6th century BC had been scattered and never returned to Jerusalem. And he had come to pray in the temple only as a eunuch. He could not go to the innermost part of the temple. And so now for the first time, the word goes to one of the outcasts or those who were not of the main, but who are on the margins of society. A foreigner an Ethiopian, and one who is sexually different, a eunuch. And so this is who it is that Philip is speaking. He's in his coach and he's reading. He's, he's open. He wants to know more about faith. He wants it explained to him. And Philip comes alongside of him and hears him reading out loud and says, Do you know what you're reading? And here's, here's the quote that we all need to remember. How can I know what I am reading unless there is someone to help explain it to me? And so Philip gets into the coach by invitation to this man who is ready to hear and to understand. He wanted to find something new. And his heart was hungering for that relationship with God which is close and intimate. Well, my greatest hope is that, like the Ethiopian eunuch, we as a congregation and individually are ready to hear and to understand and to grow in the good news and in our faith journeys. But my greatest fear is that you won't. My greatest fear is that you won't get it. That you won't take the time to go to the deep roots of faith that give nurturance and life so that we can blossom like a springtime flower. And that we can grow into the new. My greatest fear is that we're not willing to take the time or the effort. And that everything else in the world keeps us from that which is most important. And that is developing our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're afraid of, we have fear, and we fear of change, and that holds us back. We're afraid of what somebody might think about us or about this congregation, and we're, we're sort of timid about committing. We have all of these fears, and my fear is that your fears will sink you, that you won't overcome your fear and become renewed and alive. 
Anne Lamont, Lamott, who wrote the book Travel Mercies, is sort of the David Letterman of spiritual uh, literature. You know David Letterman. Uh, he's insecure and he's very self-conscious. He's sort of uncomfortable in his skin and yet he puts it out there night after night in front of three or four million people. Well, that's sort of Anne Lamott in her book Travel Mercies and the other things that she's written. And she admits that she is filled with fear and faith. So let me read a passage. Let me read a passage from Plan B, which is the sequel to her most famous book, Travel Mercy. And I'm going to read the whole thing because it's, it's rather good. And I could just take two sentences, but I want you to hear it all and enjoy it and savor it. Anne Lamont. I imagined everything that could go wrong that night. This is a night when she was her, her, introducing her son to an older stepson that he didn't know that he had. And her, her imagination is working overtime. So I imagined everything that could go wrong that night and then moved into the more spacious realms of gum surgery and colon cancer. I got some communion Milanos out of the mini bar, performed the sacrament, and then prayed that I could just keep the faith. I have a lot of faith, but I am also afraid a lot and have no real certainty about anything. I remembered something Father Tim had told me, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. Faith also means reaching deeply within for the sense one was born with. The sense, for example, to go for a walk, which she did. So I do want to say that there's a lot of fear around here these days. We have fear about the church splitting over issues. We have fear about people who might become unhappy. We fear that conflict and disagreements might get out of control. We fear the loss of friends and friendships. But are our fears based on anything like reality? Consider the following. We have a fear that our life as a church is based on scarcity, or we live like we don't have enough as a congregation and as individuals. Before the Great Depression, early in the 20th century, people were giving 2.9% of their income to the church nationwide. But during the Depression and its recovering, they were giving more than 4% of their income. Why should we fear? Now, as we have gone into another era of deep economic recession that verges on depression, people are, have been giving 2.1% to 
But during this time of recovery, what's it going to be? Do we have to live in the fear of scarcity in our living? We have a fear of loss of members, but consider from this story, a lady calls the pastor and the pastor says, hello, First Baptist Church, and she says, what kind of church are you? Well, he thought he knew what she was getting at, and so he says, well, we're the kind of church where we sing lively hymns, people are very much alive in faith, and that they are uh, just filled with the Spirit and they're out doing good works. And she said, good, I'll be there tomorrow. I didn't want to go to one of those churches where all you do is get dressed up to take a nap. We are not a church where you take a nap. We are a church where we get involved. We need not fear. We fear, the, we fear that we're no longer attracting young people, and that's a reasonable fear. Our, our children's choir shrank from 25 down to 5. Where are the young people? Well, surveys show that 20 to 40-year-olds think that the church is hypocritical, anti-homosexual, church people are sheltered, that we are very judgmental, and that we're too political. Now, how do we let them know who we are? Is that fear based in reality? It doesn't have to be. If we can get the word out that this is who we are, Sometimes it may feel like things are falling apart. So listen again to Anne Lamont. She's dealing again with her existential angst. This is at another time. But it gives us a way to think about who we are and about our fears. The next morning we celebrated Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, when... Jesus was dead and hidden in the tomb, and nothing made sense, and no one knew that he was going to be alive again. Most of his disciples had left Golgotha on Good Friday, even before he died. Only a few women remained at the cross. The disciples skulked off like dogs to the upper room to wait depressed and drunk. Or at least, this is what I imagined. I certainly would have. And I would have been thinking, we are so messed up. Father Tom adds that there was a lot of cigarette smoke that night and Monday morning quarterbacking. Well, I think that we as a congregation and we as individuals can droop into a fear-fed funk if we want to, but we don't have to. We can remember what Psalm 22 says. It begins, with, and it's, it's heard in the Psalms, but Jesus begins on the cross but with Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing full well that his suffering was coming, but that there was more. Because he was quoting a psalm that ends with a great affirmation of God's sovereignty 
in God's power over all things. In verse 28, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and the Lord rules over all the nations. In other words, the sovereign God is in control, even when you're hanging on a cross and you feel abandoned, and it's dark and the light is not showing. And you're in despair, that you're in this fear-fed funk. Depression. But then when you remember how the psalm ends, how that Easter is coming, it may feel like Good Friday and it may feel like Holy Saturday, but I hope you know that Easter is coming. That Jesus is on the loose and we better watch out. We are going to be surprised all to heck because God is in control. And so now is the time for courage in the darkness. The darkness of our greatest fears. That it can yield to the dawn of resurrection for us and for our lives. I was at the doctor's office this week and I read a quote. It's attributed to Gunther Stolman. I don't know who it is, but the quote said, Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And my statement is, now is the time for courage. For this congregation and for mainline denominational churches all around the United States and for us as individuals. We can be like that outcast Ethiopian eunuch he got it. He understood. He asked the questions and he was baptized. There is newness and there is hope in Jesus Christ. Remember that God will meet us wherever we are and will lead us to wherever God wants us if we're willing to follow. What an opportunity for us to be optimists. We can open ourselves to this journey to newness, to the Easter that God brings, to the resurrection and the hope in God's power to renew and to redeem. So here's what we need to do. To be able to hear like the eunuch could hear, that the Ethiopian would respond, responding to God's call and blessing. We need to live into the Word, to study and to apply to our life that which we learn, to live as new people, as free people, encouraging one another, not beating one another up, but helping us to focus on walking the way that Jesus is showing us. We need to live authentic lives, authentic community, no more smiles and daggers no more smiles and daggers, but that we live authentically out of our faith, trusting in the promises that we hear of Jesus' salvation and God's love for all of us. And then we are to love out our resurrection faith. So we are to live into the Word. We are to live authentic lives and live out of our resurrection faith 
to the world. And finally, we need to baptize our fear. Friends, we need to baptize our fear. Our fear needs to go into the holy water of baptism, and it needs to come up out of that with a new life, with courage and possibilities. Even my own fear that you won't get it, and that you will miss your chance to be all that you can be, for God needs such a baptism. I need to immerse my own fear into the waters of hope and renewal and to bring it up again and to proclaim the love of God and that the new beginning has, be has come. So I invite us all to baptize our own fears. God has promised us a new beginning and we can accept this as affirmative faith in the living God. And once we do that, what is there left to say then except, thanks be to God? What is there left to say then except, thanks be to God? Amen.